Lord, we are <clears throat> thankful for this book. Uh, Lord, not simply because um, it records for us the building of a wall and a city. And Lord, not just because we see a people that are revived, but Lord, behind all of that is you, a God who is always faithful to his covenant people. And Lord, we see ourselves so much, Lord, in this book. People who are frail, people who, who need a leader, people who need to be mobilized, Lord, to do your will, and people who are wandering in sin and need to be brought back, people who need to, to listen to your word. And um, when that word is proclaimed, Lord, to see their sin as you see it, to confess, to repent, and Lord, to, to step out afresh and to, to celebrate a walk with you. And Lord, this morning I ask that as I um, unpack this text for your people, Lord, as you work through my lips, would you allow us, Lord, uh, to see the, the wonder and the beauty and the majesty and the awe of who you are? May we be drawn with joy and amazement that you are our great God and Savior. Strengthen us today, Lord. Allow us to be humble before you. Would you now be glorified in your name? Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Some of you, probably people more my age, remember a guy by the name of Paul Harvey. And he was on the radio, uh, and he would have a little blurbs here and there that you would catch on the radio. And one of the things that he was known for, at the end of his broadcast, he would say, now that's what? The rest of the story. Uh, there is a sense as we come to this text of Scripture that you're probably thinking, we could have stopped last week. God's people have been revived. The walls have been built. Um, they're now settled in the land, and there was a great celebration. That's the end of the story. But Nehemiah here wants us to see there's more to the story. Now, as we, as we read through that story, did you notice Nehemiah? Did you notice all the things that he's doing that maybe he hasn't been doing through, through the rest of the story so far? I mean, what's he doing? He's throwing furniture out. He's chasing people down. He's pulling out hair. And he's probably about 60 years old. I mean, here's a character. If you're a guy, you're like, I want to be like Nehemiah, man. This is good stuff. But this was not easy stuff for Nehemiah. In fact, this was very, very difficult stuff. And, and for us to really grasp the impact of what's going on here, um, we need to take some time to look at, at the setting and, and, and just understand the clues so that we can grasp the impact of what is taking place in these few verses in chapter 13. So I want to draw your attention to begin with to Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. And the importance here is to see that Nehemiah, the story begins in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And the story continues, this is when he hears about the condition of the people, the condition of the city, and in chapter 2 verse 1, we're still in the 20th year, but we're in a different month. Just a few months later, he's now in front of the the, the king, and he is downcast because of the news that he's heard, 
and ultimately, God in his providence allows the king to be concerned about what Nehemiah is concerned about, gives him permission to go back to Jerusalem and with the purpose of restoring the walls. And as we know, um, Genesis, not Genesis, Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15 tells us that the walls were, were finished in 52 days. So we're not talking about a huge amount of time. In fact, the, the completion of the walls, and you could even say the completion of the celebration, took place probably within, within the, the, the time frame of about six months or certainly less than a year. But we're also told in uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 14 something very important that helps frame what is taking place in this story. It tells us that Nehemiah had been appointed governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes king, um, the king. So that means that Nehemiah, once he got back, the walls were built, the people are restored, continued to serve as governor to finish out those 12 years. And so all those covenant commitments, all the things that he had set up, that we've worked through, that we've studied through now, become the normal part of the life of Israel in Judah. But if you go now to chapter 13, and you notice in verse 6, in the, in the midst of telling the story, he reveals this to us. Verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil. So there's this time frame that's helpful for us to understand. He was governor for 12 years, and like a responsible servant of the king who allowed him to go back to Jerusalem, he goes now back to Babylon. And we're not exactly sure specifically what he did. Maybe he went back into the role of cupbearer. But he was there, and we're not sure how long. It just says, some time later. And we're not sure why he went back to Jerusalem. We can, you know, we can surmise, we can come up with some ideas, but we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but what we know is that he did. And there was this period of time that took place. What's significant, though, is not why he went back, what's significant is what he finds when he returns to Jerusalem. Now remember the last events recorded for us at the beginning, or the last part of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13. On the day they, they, they celebrated the dedication of the walls, remember the choirs were, were, were walking all the way around the walls and they met in the temple. And then there were two more things that took place. They began now to take up the offerings. The storehouses had people in charge of them, and they were gathering all this stuff to make sure that the temple now could, could be the place where, where ministry was taking place. And people had brought all grain. They, they brought the resources, all the, the necessary resources for the ongoing ministry of the temple. That was an act of obedience. That was part of their celebration together. But we also saw at the beginning of chapter 13 that they read the word of God and they saw that they needed to separate themselves from foreigners. And these are the ones who would not turn away from their idols to worship or to serve the one true God. And so they separated themselves from them. So, so there was this, not only this wonderful celebration, there was also this commitment to live out what Nehemiah had, 
had walked them through what Ezra had taught them about, but as they read it in the word of God, they wanted to be obedient and they wanted to celebrate what God had done there in Judah, not only in building the walls, but also in restoring them as his people. But then we read the following verse, now before this. Now one of the things that's might want to say a challenge for us and say, how does this all fit with what else was written? And here is one of those things that you can study on your own, but I want you to consider um, the, the, the expression or the translation now before this is an accurate translation, but it's a little unfortunate because what it does is it gives us the idea that what he's saying here is an issue of time. And the way this word can be used, the way this expression can be used, is not just about time, but it can also be about, I want to say, circumstances. In other words, what we have here, if we just say before this, doesn't fit into the chronology of the book. It is an expression that can come with a different idea. Before this can also be understood to mean in the presence of this or in the face of this. When you stand before someone, When you stand in the face of someone. So what's happening here is this. There's this great celebration. Look at all that God has done in Israel. The people are restored. The walls are built up. And they've gathered. They celebrated. And specifically, they're bringing stuff into the temple. And they're listening to the word. They're being obedient to the word. In the face of all this that has been done, here's now how they're living. Okay? So there's a sense in which here these words are talking about in the face of this zealous obedience to God's word, what we're going to read here is what ultimately is going on. This is what was going on after Nehemiah left, and this is what is going on when he returns. And what he finds, friends, is evil going on in the house of God. So, What is a man of God to do when he finds evil going on in the house of God? How should he respond when he sees God's people adrift into spiritual decline? And friends, there are are times when not getting angry about sin is itself sinful. There are times when we should be angry about sin. We should be angry at the sin that is going on in our culture among God's people. There's a righteousness about that. There's a rightness about that. But it's also possible to be angry at the wrong things at the wrong times and for the wrong reasons. But the greater problem in this text that really we we wrestle with, and I think that the greater problem that we might have is a cowardice when zeal for the house of God is at stake. Now, friends, What we have in this chapter is Nehemiah zealous for the house of God. Listen to to Psalm 69 and verse 9. See, Nehemiah had learned this from David. In that psalm, here's what David says. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, there is a holy and righteous Anger that fuels a zeal for a desecrated house. And that's what Nehemiah is going to be not only experiencing, but expressing as he returns. 
But I want you to flash forward from our text here to another time in the New Testament, John chapter 2 and verse 17. Because what Nehemiah is doing in this passage, in the house of God, when he returns to Jerusalem, is a foreshadowing of what Jesus did the day he entered into Jerusalem and found the people selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons for sacrifices and money changers all in the temple. And what does Jesus do? And just imagine, kind of in slow motion, the text says he made a whip of cords. And you've got to just kind of get the picture there. He walks into the temple, and it says he made a whip of cords. Anyone here ever made a whip of cords before? I think it takes a little while, especially considering what he was going to do with it. You wanted just him sitting there with, with all the, the tools that he needed to make that whip, and he, he's winding it together, and people are like, what is this guy doing? What is this guy doing? And then holy zeal is expressed. In fact, after he takes his whip of cords and drives everyone and every animal out of the temple, as well as pours the coins onto the ground and turns over the tables, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus, exercising holy anger, was exercising zeal for the house of God. And that is what we find Nehemiah doing here. And so our central thought today, I've put it this way. A righteous fight against the drift of spiritual decline. There's a a, a passionate zeal, a righteous fight against the, the drift of spiritual decline. He comes in and he sees all this sin, all this evil going on in the house of God. And he's consumed with a holy zeal. So how should God's spiritual leaders fight against the drift of spiritual decline? How how should God's people react to God's men or God's men being zealous for the house of God? I mean, they're going to say, man, this... That pastor's really just, you know, he's a little too touchy out there. You know, he's talking about sin and, and confronting people because they're not walking with God and they did certain things. How, how, is, how are God's people supposed to respond when the leaders of the church are trying to deal with sin, to deal with evil in the house of God? What is at stake if zeal for the house of God is neglected or those who should be zealous are cowards? Friends, this passage goes against the grain of how society wants and expects the church to function. Now, I'm not saying we're going we're gonna to start a new hair-pulling ministry. A, we'll find out there's a reason for all that. But there is a holy zeal that God's people should have, in particular, as it relates to the house of God. It isn't society that should dictate how we behave as a church. God takes his commands and the welfare of his church incredibly seriously. Now, we're going to look at four different evils, you might want to say, four different ways these are played out. When Nehemiah returns, what does he find? Well, first of all, he finds a leadership that is compromised, a leadership that is compromised. Look at verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, 
and put in there high priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, right, little signals should be going on right there, little red flashing lights should be going on there. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Let's just step back and let's just kind of let this soak in. Eliashib was the highest spiritual leader in the land. He was the high priest. He was the one who was in charge of the temple. And while Nehemiah was away, the mice had begun to play. But then we find this name Tobiah. You might want to go back to chapter, what, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, and you're going to see Tobiah there mentioned among others who are opposed to the wall being raised up. In fact, it is Tobiah who mocks and scores uh, the rebuilding of the, the walls by saying this, if a fox goes up on the wall, he'll break it down. And you can hear the guys in the background going, ha, 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 That's Tobiah. Now, the real fox in this story is Tobiah himself. And this fox has wormed his way into the hen house, so to speak. Someone, as I was reading, made this statement. This is like a picture of Martin Luther hanging in the Pope's office at the Vatican. That'll settle in eventually. In other words, this was the enemy. And the enemy now was not just at the temple, wasn't just showing up at the temple, but the high priest had opened the doors and he'd removed the grain and the frankincense and the vessels and said, well, sure, you can come and live in here. You can set up shop. We've got a great loft here, kind of loft area, you know, high up, upper end living here in the temple. Come on in, stay here. That was no place for someone who didn't worship the God Yahweh. But certainly Tobiah had been waiting patiently. If you can't turn things upside down by force, you're just going to wait and slowly work your plan, and you're going to infiltrate. Just be patient. See, with Nehemiah out of the picture, Tobiah can start working on leadership that is left behind. You can just imagine what it was like after Nehemiah left. Just think through this a little bit. Just the the idea of leadership began to say, you know, can't we just be a little bit more loving? Can't we just be a little bit more tolerant? Especially with those that we disagree with. Let's let's give them the the, the hand of fellowship and and bring them in, and and maybe we we can dialogue over this. Maybe we can talk about ways that we can kind of like find mutual ground. Isn't it better to win your enemies and to to gain their trust? Isn't it a sign of love and brotherhood to lighten up a little so that we can all be working in unity together? See, these are all statements that move leadership, 
spiritual leadership and direction of compromise, so much so that the enemy now will be living in the house of God. This is no small thing. This is a serious matter. So how does he respond? How does Nehemiah deal with this? Look at verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Notice, first of all, how Nehemiah saw the compromise. In other words, not, not that he caught it, but how he saw it for what it really was. How does he describe it? As evil. It wasn't just, hey, listen, I know you're trying to build a relationship with him, you know. You know, just, can you just kind of like maybe, maybe work out a 12-month plan he can finally work his way out? And... No, he comes back and he's like, this is an offense against God. This is evil. It wasn't just a misunderstanding. It wasn't just a kind gesture by one of God's religious leaders trying to reach out to one of the pagan leaders. No, this was not a time for dialogue. This wasn't even a time for prayer. This was an offense to God, and it needed to be dealt with. And so notice what the action that Nehemiah took, verse 8. And I was very angry. Ah, see, he was a sinner. No, this is righteous anger. And I realize that righteous anger can only last so long before it turns to sinful anger. But he was righteous to be angry about, about someone offending God, in particular, the high priest and the whole of the temple now being defiled by his presence. And of course, you have to laugh now at what happens next, right? Then I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders that they cleanse the chambers, and I brought back the vessels in the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So his, his anger then was, was righteous, and you can imagine what's going on in his mind. I came back to Jerusalem, helped build walls, and see you know, Jerusalem restored, to see the people of God revived and, and, and re returned to God. And I was there for, for 12 years, and, and, and things were going fantastic. And I leave for a little while, and this is how you behave? And so with holy zeal, he throws everything out of the room. His furniture, his clothing, his personal goods, his toothbrush, everything. And notice he's, it says he had the chambers cleansed. Now, there's two ideas there. It could be just the fact that he's, he's going to have all the rooms um, basically ceremonially cleaned. But I, th I think it's also interesting, if you go back in there, it talks about Tobiah taking up this room where they kept the grain and the frankincense. And I take that to be, there are separate rooms that all had these different things in. They usually put different things in different rooms. So it's possible that this was not just one room. This was like a slew of rooms that Tobiah had now in the temple. And then it says he restored the room back to its purpose. You can imagine Tobiah coming back home after a day of work and opening the door and it's like, grain, what's going on there, right? His, his, his house is gone. I mean, his dwelling place is gone. All his stuff has been taken away by the dumpster. 
And that was a righteous thing for Nehemiah to do. Why? Because there was evil in the house of God. And he had to act with zeal, just like Jesus would, to rid the temple of this evil. Notice, secondly, what I'm calling financial neglect. Financial neglect. Here's what Nehemiah found next. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Now wait, wait a minute. Wait, didn't we just read something about this just a little bit before? Yes, the end of chapter 12. But they all gathered together and they said, yes, we're going to bring all this stuff into the storehouse. We're going to make sure all the grain and all the resources are there so that the Levites and the priests can have what they need, not only for their own families, but also for the running of the temple. And hadn't the people of God in chapter 10, as part of their covenant commitment, said, we obligate ourselves to bring to the temple tithes and offerings for the service of the house of God. Yes, they had said that. That was part of their covenant commitment to God. But they had stopped bringing these tithes and offerings. And as a result of that, the Levites and singers had to flee to the field. The idea of fleeing here literally means that they were driven out of the temple, out of necessity, so that they could find food, so that they could actually earn a living, and they could provide for the needs of their family. These people had neglected giving to the temple, and the result of that, one of the results was that The Levites and the priests just didn't have the resources to live, so they had to go somewhere else. Let alone having resources for the actual ongoing sacrifices in the temple. Now the focus here isn't the plight of the Levites and the singers, although their comfort and survival is important to God. What was central to their offense is that they had gone back on their promises. Emphatically, at the end of chapter 10, the people had said, we will not Neglect the house of God. Go back there, chapter 10. Notice those words. We will not neglect the house of God. We are in covenant with you, God. We will not go back on this covenant. And we will not neglect the house of God. We promise to take care of the temple and of the people who are depending on our gifts. But you know how it goes. Things get a little tighter at home. Teenagers get bigger and drink lots more milk. The price of bread is more expensive. Olive oil is in high demand. And we want a little bit more comfort. And so we we hold back maybe what we should be giving and we find other ways that those resources should be used. That's the kind of thinking that's going on. And slowly, a little bit at a time, the resolutions made get pushed aside. And yes, we were going to give. We, we made that commitment. We, made that, we meant that commitment. But things have come up. And, and, and things are, that, that, that are part of life are important here. And every year goes by, it becomes easier and easier to live with your seared conscience until the house of God is forsaken. And here we have Israel now having drifted away from this commitment to provide for the house of God. It was all part of God's commandment as well as part of their commitment to God. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that the prophet Malachi is a contemporary, he's the last prophet, he's a contemporary of Nehemiah, and this is what Malachi says in chapter three. You might want to turn there. Malachi is just a few pages overall. It's, it's in minor prophets area, but if you look at your 
Old Testament, go right to the end, you'll find it. Malachi. He was a prophet of God, living and, and ministering during this particular time of Old Testament history. Right, so this is specifically targeted to these few verses in chapter 13. And his message becomes clear in light of what Nehemiah records for us here. Here's what he says. I want you to pick up at Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 7. Nehemiah, sorry, Malachi 3 and verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Where does that come from? It's the Mosaic Covenant. It's the language of the Mosaic Covenant. That's what Nehemiah had, had rooted the people in. Say, listen, yes, God scattered you, but now return to him. Keep reading. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He's speaking right into what's going on with Israel at that point in time. He's saying to them, prophetically, from God, you are robbing me by virtue of your neglect of the house of God. So how does Nehemiah then respond to this, this whole dynamic then of this neglect of the house of God? We're back now in Nehemiah. Full of holy zeal for the house of God, he responds now to the people of God who are living with this attitude and neglect. Does he say, hey, let's get a financial committee together and we can figure out how we can stir the people up to give a little bit more, maybe, you know, maybe throw out some emails here and there and maybe send some flyers to encourage them and that kind of stuff. Does he say that? No. Does he put a chart up on the wall, maybe a rocket ship that kind of tells we want to reach our goal for our budget and so we're going to keep lining it, line, 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 line. No, he doesn't do that. What does he say? He confronts them. He speaks directly to them. You made a commitment. You said we are going to make sure the house of God is taken care of. And so notice the first thing he does, verse 11. I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? I'll tell you something, I wouldn't want to be one of these people right now. I would not want to be, be, be smelling his breath, so to speak, because I'm sure that he's breathing fire. The idea of confront here is a verbal combat. You signed this resolution. You wanted to do it. No one made you do it. You said you're going to promise to not neglect the house of God, but you've forsaken the house of God. The second thing he does, he says, and I gathered them together. He confronted, he gathered, and set them in their stations. In other words, he's like, all right, you're here, you're here, you're here. And you can just imagine the people, they're like you know, little kids, you know. Like, oh, God, this is where I'm supposed to stand, you know. I mean, they were listening to Nehemiah. They were doing what he said. And he gathered them together in their stations. They knew it was now time to listen. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. I mean, it's, just, it's kind of a, an understatement, isn't it? Then all Judah brought the tithes 
No, in other words, <laughs> we're terrified, and you are right, Nehemiah, and we're going to bring this stuff now. And then he appointed reliable men, dependable overseers, because what had happened was that people who were in positions of authority had not been dependable, they had not been reliable, they had allowed this drift and this neglect for the house of God to go on. I do think, however, that this problem is top-down. When you have Eliashib opening the temple to Tobiah, you know there's a change in attitude in the leadership that trickles down among those who are all working in the system. So this ultimately is a leadership issue, but it's a practical issue that he had to confront. So I pointed his treasures over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites as their assistant, Hanan, son of Zuccor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Get back to doing what we're supposed to do. That's the second evil. Notice the third evil that Nehemiah is going to confront here. Let's read verse 15 and following. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys also, uh, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And I warned them on, that, on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Notice the exclamation point. So what we find here is really a, a disregard for the Sabbath as a day of rest for God's people. What was given to Israel as a sign, along with circumcision, to those around them, Sabbath was one of them, had now turned into this, this farmer's market kind of gathering. It had been commercialized. And you can just hear the noises of that day by reading the story. And what Nehemiah sees in the city is a people of God Two really things that are going on. They're, they're working on the Sabbath, and they're buying and selling on the Sabbath. They're treading the wine presses. They're beasts of burdens that you can, you can hear, you can almost smell as you read this text. You see all the, the fruit that's there. You see, that the Sabbath had been forgotten as the one day in seven when God's people were supposed to rest. Well, so that's just legalism. Well, it, it can be legalism, or it can be God's plan that he wants you to follow. And there are reasons for that. Now, let's not forget the people's words of promise recorded for us in chapter 10 and verse 31. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land, this is the people speaking now, this is their commitment back in chapter 10, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they were saying before this, we're not going to do this, we're not going to sell on the Sabbath, we're not, we're not going to, you know, 
defile the Sabbath. But here they are when he returns. The ways of the world had crowded out worship of the one true God on the day set aside for rest and for God to be the focus. But a steady drift away from God's commandment and their covenant promise to God had taken place. You know the story of the frog in the kettle. You know, the frog gets in there, the water's cold, and you turn the heat on, slowly it warms up and warms up, and the frog doesn't know, he's just swimming around, blah, 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 and over time, he's cooked. And this is, this is the kind of thing that was happening. Little by little, over time, not overnight, but slowly, week by week, season by season, no one really took notice. Changes just started happening. People started to gather. People started to say, you know what? I'm going to get up early today. I'm going to grind some grapes. I don't want them to, to turn sour on me. I don't want them to, to go bad. You can just imagine the kind of thinking process that went through the people. Hey, I want to make my worship of God. I want to take my worship of God seriously, but God also wants me to care for my family. This is harvest time, and things are always busy then, so I've got to do that. God understands. He knows. Or another one. Hey, if if we allow the grapes to sit around and not be pressed for wine, we might lose them. And God wouldn't want us to be wasteful stewards, would he? So we will have to press them on the Sabbath. They're ready to go. I mean, we, we, they're convincing themselves they have to do this. That's the kind of way we think. Or, hey, the out-of-town merchants are coming into Jerusalem to buy and sell their trade. We can't be expected to sit idly by and let them get all the business, can we? I mean, we need to be out there doing our own buying or selling or we're going to lose out. Now, for all of you that want to go to Chick-fil-A for lunch today, have fun because they will be closed. You see, there's an aspect here where God said, the Sabbath is mine and this is for your rest and there's a reason behind that. Now, all of this makes, completely sen- it makes complete sense except for the fact that it was an offense to God. <laughs> The way people rationalize makes sense. But the problem is, is this what God desires? And if God says, hey, listen, I want you to rest on the Sabbath, what should you be doing? Resting on the Sabbath. You should be setting aside the Sabbath. Now, we are not living with the concept of the Sabbath. That was an Old Testament concept, okay? It was an Old Testament reality. There are implications of that dynamic of rest. There are implications of worship being crowded out by this world. But just some thoughts to think of here. Is Sunday worship with God's church a priority? Or is it something easily to be brushed aside for other plans? As Dennis mentioned this this morning, do you take time to prepare yourself and your family for Sunday worship? I mean, are, you, are you staying out late on Saturday night? And so you're just like really groggy Sunday morning? 
Are you getting your kids clothes together? Are you getting showers taken care of so you can be here actively and on time? These are just ways in which we honor God on a day that's set aside to be a day that the church gathers for worship. If it's within your power to do so, do you avoid being scheduled for work on Sunday so that you can spend time with the people of God? I realize in our society that can be difficult, and if you're, you know, if you're a certain professions, it can be hard. You're a nurse or you're a manager somewhere, and the store's always open, but is it your desire? Are you hungry? Are you fighting so that you can be part of God's church on that Sunday? Are you overly eager to get home so you can watch the football game rather than taking time to reflect on what you've just heard? There's more that we could say about that, but we don't want to, again, we don't want to be legalistic. These are questions that just kind of thrown out there. You have to ponder and say, is the Lord's Day a day that we're going to say, I'm giving God priority here? Or are we crowding it out with so many other things? Now, how does he respond? How does he react to this particular offense? There's really three things that we can, we can categorize here. The first response is theological And he basically reminds the people about the evil that they were doing and the evil that their fathers had done. Notice verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us on this day? He's saying, listen, the reason you were in captivity is because your fathers were doing the exact same thing. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So not only are you just acting like them, but you've just been brought out of that. How could you even be doing that? There's a theological reason. There's a practical thing. So here's what he does. He closes closes the gates. Secondly, he posts his own guard. So he closed the gates. So from the beginning of the Sabbath, 6 o'clock, the night before, to 6 o'clock the next day, the gates are closed. No one can get in, no one can get out. He forces the people into a habit based on closing the gates. He posts his own guard. In other words, I'm not going to rely on other people that I don't trust. I'm going to rely on people that I do trust to make sure those gates stay closed. And then verse 20, he warns the pagan merchants. And the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. In other words, yeah, I wonder how long this is going to go on. We just want to sell our stuff. Maybe the people will come out to us. And notice what he says, verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. Now remember something here. Some of this strong language. Remember who Nehemiah is. He is the governor with authority. So a lot of this language is, might want to say, civil obedience language. When he says, I'm going to lay my hands on you, it may be that he himself was going to lay hands on them, but he would be doing so exercising the authority of order. So the Tyrians got the picture and left. It says, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. The third one, of course, is ceremonial. And this is just always 
it's kind of all what's going on, isn't it? There's this purifying, there's this ceremonial cleansing that's taking place. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. There was this attitude of holiness. There was this attitude of purification. This was a holy day before the Lord, and we're going to keep it that way. So we've had a compromise in leadership. We've had a, a neglect of the temple. We've had this desecration of the Sabbath. And now we, we're moving into what I'm calling a polluted family, a polluted family. Here's the problem. There was a drift ultimately toward intermarriage. Verse 23, in those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and a half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, did you get that? There is this a, will, a willful drift into intermarriage with pagan women who worship other idols, and it has a huge effect on the children. Certainly, the intermarriage was an offense to God, but what Nehemiah now is seeing, he's seeing the implication now, and this kind of actually tells you that, that these people... This is, this is a while later, okay, because there's now children, and the children now are able to speak. So there has to be a period of time here where this growth can take place, and, and this, these, this, this drift in, in spiritual decline is actually um, part of the picture. And so he, he is, he's focusing in now on, on the fact that they can't even speak. These children can't even speak Hebrew. They can only speak the language of their mother. And if they can't speak Hebrew, get this, then they can't read Hebrew. And if they can't read Hebrew, how can they be taught the things of God? How can they be taught to remember the faithfulness of their covenant God? How can they do what Moses called the people of God to do? And I'm reading Deuteronomy 32.7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. Well, they won't be able to if they can't speak the language. You can't remember what you're not taught, and, and you can't teach what you don't know because you can't read. And the implication of this on the people of God is huge. They were two or one or two generations removed from having the distinctiveness of their Hebrew culture disappear because these people would not obey God and pursued marriages with the pagan women around them. Do you remember what the people had said to Nehemiah and God in chapter 10 and verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We, we, we will not do that. This is their commitment. This was their promise. This is their covenant statement. So not only are they being disobedient to God, but they're also breaking their side of the covenant with God, and that disobedience was riddled with all sorts of familial and national implications. It just reminded me of the, of the phrase that people often think about, or maybe even they would say, hey, this won't hurt anyone. Notice his response. 
Remember, he's 60 years old or so, and he's full of zeal for the house of God. First of all, he's moved to action. He's moved to action. (laughs) And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. Go get them, Nehemiah. All right? And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. These are strong words. Might even seem a little bit over the top, right? Confrontation. He's simply making it clear that he was standing for God and he was speaking for God. And then it says he cursed them. Now this is not bad language. In the covenant statement, there were oaths and there were curses. If you broke your oath, you were calling on God to carry out his curses. And what he was saying to them is, listen, you have done this evil. May God now curse you. May God exercise his part of the covenant on you. And then he's beating and pulling out hair, right? Now, there's something about the pulling out of hair that uh, seems to indicate um, a, a, a public shame and scorn, a public humiliation for people who have offended God or who have broken the rules, the laws of that day. Now, you might say in today's world, it's like, well, it's a big deal. People can, they can marry whoever they want, right? But in the economy of Israel, that wasn't the case. And if you did, there are consequences for that. So not only does he take action, but he also then confronts them with the word of God. Did not Solomon, he goes into all of the things that Solomon did and all the wives that he had, but notice what it says at the end of verse 26. Nevertheless, as good as Solomon was, foreign women made him to sin. As good as he was, it was the foreign women that were his downfall. He's saying, just read your Bible and you will know where this evil will lead. And then he chases out one particular person who is significant. And just let the the characters in this verse, verse 28, sting you as you read. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, so grandson here, was the son-in-law of who? Sanballat. You remember that name? Again, go back to chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, and you will see that he is the arch enemy of Nehemiah, and he was the one that tried to do all he could to stop the rebuilding of the temple and to cause damage to the people of God as they were building the temple. So you get this picture here. He comes back. Tobiah is living in the temple. Samballat's son now is son-in-law, or his son-in-law, I should say, is the grandson of the high priest of Israel. This is polluted. Israel's not in a good place. In just a few short years. So notice what it says. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambal, the Horonite, 
therefore I chased him from me. <laughs> I'm just imagining this. I'm just imagining this 60-year-old guy chasing down this young guy who's like flee, like, ah, here comes Nehemiah, here comes Nehemiah. Why? Because he had the zeal of God on him. Zeal for the house of God. Zeal for the honor of God's name and the reputation of the God of Israel. It was moving him to action. And he was going to take action. And the people around him knew it. And we have a summary here in verse 30. I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed time for first fruits. I cleansed, I established, provided. This is, again, this is a summary of a caring, zealous leader. And the sad reality is, many times, this is what zealous, caring leaders have to do repeatedly with the people of God who wander. Now, I want to take a little bit of time to kind of draw some things out of this that I think this passage is, is really wanting us to at least identify and see. Number one, there is a need for honesty about sin. This text screams at us a warning how quickly we drift towards spiritual decline. Now, friends, just be honest. How quickly you and I can drift in our hearts, in our actions, in our words to a place that we do not want to be now. We make commitments to God. We sing songs to God, telling him how much we love him, how much we want to serve him. And that very day, we're doing things and we're saying things that dishonor him. We pray for God to use us and to grow us, and yet we make decisions that are contrary to his will. So quickly we give in to temptation. And in many lives and in many cases, that temptation leads to sin. And that sin leads to conflict, to pain, to suffering, to hopelessness. And this text showed us four areas of sin that the people had given into. The compromise at the leadership level, neglecting the ministry of giving, crowding out worship, pursuing unholy unions with unbelievers, but those are just four examples of, of many things that we could put in this long list of sins that we struggle with. Let me just throw out a few here. Gossip, slander, selfishness, rudeness, bitterness, angst, anxiety, hatred, being intolerant, being proud, immoral, envious, jealous. Just friends, we, we, we so quickly and so easily drift we're honest to see it, we're in a good place. Our friend Ron Costello was at our house the other night. We were chatting. I was asking him about his work, and I was asking about the different kinds of um, bugs in particular, termites that he has to look for. And he says, Rod, there are two kinds of termites. There are termites that come from the ground. There's termites that come, and they swarm. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Ron, but the ones in the ground, he says, you can kill those off. But the ones that swarm, you know, when you fumigate a house, whatever, those, those are the swarming ones. He says, you can finish that whole process, and the very same day they can come back, but you will not know it. But they'll be there, and you won't see the effects of them being there for another five years, ten years maybe. But then he said, but that's not the worst of it. 
What's worse than that is the dry rot. And the dry rot being a fungus that just goes from two before to two before and ultimately eats away at the integrity of the wood. And his job is to go into homes where people are wanting to sell their houses. And they want Ron to come out from climbing around under the house and looking around and poking here and there and to say, hey, everything's clean, everything's good, looks fantastic, you're on your way. But that isn't always the case. Sometimes he has to say, I'm sorry to inform you, but you have termites. And I'm sorry to inform you that you have dry rot. And the people can listen to what he has to say. And they're probably going to listen to what he has to say and go, oh, and they're probably going to say, well, I don't have that much. Just a little bit. I know it's probably a little bit of termite. A little bit of dry rot. All houses have a little bit of dry rot, don't they? It's okay. It's no big deal. And Ron's going to say, well, I'm still going to write it up because it's what I found. And it's because that's what's there. Now, friends, the, the, the reality I'm trying to push home here is this, that we have termites that are swarming There's dry rot that's going on, I'm saying in a spiritual sense, and it's our sin. And we can either be honest about it and allow God to change us, we can confess our sin and be restored to him, or we can fight, 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 and drift away. There's a need here to be honest about sin. Secondly, and and hear this please, there is a need for zealous leaders who care for the flock. My friends, be thankful for the patience and guidance of God by spiritual leaders who are motivated by zeal for the house of God. And I would say in our context, the house of God certainly is the gathering of God's people. It is the church that is under the care of spiritual leaders, but those spiritual leaders, of course, under the care of Christ himself. And they're under shepherds. Now hear this, it isn't, easy for those leaders to confront sin. No one enjoys making hard phone calls or writing difficult emails or or gathering in living rooms because sin is running amok in people's lives or in families. Spiritual leaders in the church don't get up each day eagerly anticipating the sin that they will have to deal with that week. But they must because it's their responsibility. Just like Nehemiah. He didn't come back to Jerusalem and say, you know, I'm going going back to Babylon, man. This is too much. No, 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 no. He understood his role. He understood the responsibility that he had on his shoulders, and he understood that what was going on there dishonored the name of the God, Yahweh. And he had to speak up. He had to confront. The zeal for the house of God was preeminent in him. Now, friends, you could turn to Matthew 18, and you see in Matthew 18, there is a principle that comes from the lips of Jesus himself, and it's the principle of what we call church discipline. I like to prefer to call it the exercise of biblical love within the body. All right? 
It is a means by which we care for one another. If there is sin and that sin is confronted and that sin is not repented of, then two or three are, uh, come together and they confront again. But this is all done in a loving way. The goal is restoration. And if that doesn't work out, then you go and you tell it to the church. And if that is not the means by which a person is repenting, then ultimately that person is put outside of the church. And the picture there is, means that they're no longer under the protection of the church. They're in the domain where Satan can have full reign on them. And in that passage is an often misquoted verse. In the context of church discipline, the context of confronting people with sin and seeking to restore their lives is this verse, where two or three are gathered in my name. What? There I am in the midst of them. That is not a verse talking about prayer. It involves prayer, but it's not a verse talking about prayer. It's a verse that's talking about the resolving of conflict, the resolving of sin that is present in the community of believers. So when spiritual leaders are zealous for the house of God, they're going to take the words of Jesus seriously, in particular when Jesus himself was zealous for the house of God. They're going to see the importance of it, and they're going to carry it out, but do it in a way that is loving, careful, purposeful, and for the glory of God, and for the good of that individual. Now, in our particular text, throughout this text, Nehemiah has, you might want to say, been firing up little prayers to God. Did you notice that? And you notice what he says? There's a consistent theme there, right? Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his servants. Or you read on a little further. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Again, there's that has said love he's appealing to. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then verse 31, it ends with, remember me, O my God, for good. These might seem like self-serving words, but they're, they're not. They're words that are simply saying, God, I am trying my best to stand for you in the thick and the mess of the evil that is rampant in the house of God. God, remember me. In other words, I need your help. I am doing what you're calling me to do. These are prayers of one who knows that God does not ignore the earnest service of unworthy servants like Nehemiah. His appeal to remember, friends, is rooted in his loyalty to God and his covenant. Now he remembers that God is always faithful to his covenant people. And so he's serving God in light of that covenant. There's one final thought that I want to leave you with. And friends, this is so critically important. Now let's remember that the book of Nehemiah is the last chronological book in the Old Testament. All right, the story of the Old Testament ends in chapter 13. <laughs> now, it seems to end on a downer, doesn't it? I mean, this is not a bang of sorts. This is more of a whimper. 
Now take a moment to look back and remember and reflect over the fact that when Nehemiah came, the walls were rebuilt. Yes! The people were restored in this great revival. Yes! And there was this great celebration and ultimately filled with joy. Now if man were writing this story, that's where it would end. A fairy tale. And they all lived happily ever after. But that's not reality. And God wants us to see reality. He wants us to see the truth for what it really is and the the nature of people for who they really are and a covenant God for who he really actually is. So this is not how Nehemiah ends. It ends with people drifting back into sin. It ends with spiritual leaders having to call them back again. I say this a lot, but there are times in Scripture where you, just, you as an individual, you just want to jump in and you want to slap people silly. This would be one of those occasions where you'd say, what do you think you are doing? Don't you realize how faithful God is being to you? Don't you understand how privileged you are? Don't you comprehend that you're doing exactly what your forefathers did that caused them to be taken into captivity? How can you do this evil in the house of God, and yet we know that we do. But friends, this is the story of the Old Testament. Just hang with me here and hear this. This is the story of the Old Testament. In the progress of the Old Testament revelation, Israel had made promises and broken them over and over and over again. Moses, the people joined together in covenant. Moses goes up into a mountain, and what do the people do? Let's have a party, and let's build a calf and worship it. Oh, wait a second. What happened there? And just over and over and over again, there are these times of revival, and the revival's great. It's genuine. It's real. But how quickly God's people drift back into their sin. And friends, this is the old familiar tune in the Old Testament. Promises made broken promises, promises made, broken promises, promises made, broken promises. And what this text is shouting at us is this, that God's people cannot keep God's law. They want to. There are times they stand before God and say, this is what we are committing to. They don't have the ability to. They can make pledges all they want, but they cannot keep their promises. There's no way that man can, by himself, live to please God by keeping his commandments. What a way to end the Old Testament. Why not something uplifting? Why not something that gives us hope? But if you've been listening to the melodic line of Nehemiah, you will remember that God is always faithful to his covenant people. And that theme isn't just the theme of Nehemiah. It is Nehemiah's theme, in my opinion, but it's a theme also that continues on in its thread throughout the rest of the Bible. Now turn your books to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And this is important as we bring this to a close. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, contemporary, remember this. Here's what Malachi says. Behold, I send my messenger. It's a reference to John the Baptist. 
and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, that's the Messiah, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his what? Temple. And the messenger, again, that's the Messiah. Don't get that confused with the other messenger. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Friends, the story ends. There'll be 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, what will break forth is a sound of good news. And that good news will be this one Jesus. His name will be called Jesus because he will save people from their sins. In other words, they don't have to save themselves from their sins. He will save them from their sins. He enters this world with a holy zeal to confront sin at the cross. There is a great collision that takes place on the cross. There is man's sin and there's God's holy zeal to eradicate that sin. And it comes together at the cross and when Jesus is sacrificed as your substitute on the cross, holy zeal consumes that sin, pays for that sin. See, only Jesus is qualified to be the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus is qualified to be the perfect son or to be the perfect savior. He came with holy zeal to shatter our sin by dying as our savior on the cross. This is the message of the Old Testament. We can't do it. We can't measure up. We need help. We need a Messiah. This is the message of the New Testament. You can't do it, but Jesus can. And he did. And so you by virtue of your faith and trust in him, are clothed with his righteousness. Not your own. With his holiness. Not your own. He is your savior. See, God is always faithful to his covenant people. And he was faithful to bring a Messiah to be that sacrifice once for all. And the impact of that was to say, you're right, you can't, you won't, but Jesus can, and he did for you. Will you believe that? Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you for the resounding reality that even in the, the thickness and mess of sin that we make life, you are consistently faithful as our covenant God to pursue us, to love us, to restore us. And Lord, you have done that in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, certainly, Lord, may we be attentive to your house, to the church. May we be mindful of the, the sin that infiltrates and is rampant and, and, and comes in, in different times at different seasons. But ultimately, Lord, would we see you? Would you be the, the anchor? Would you be the, the means by which we're able to see all of this in a right 
way. That we'd be honest about our sinfulness, that we will be supportive of that leadership that is loving people and drawing people back to you. May we be part of that process of, of, of helping one another to pursue living a holy life because you are a great God. But Lord, may we not forget that our righteousness and our holiness is not our own. Our righteousness and our holiness is only found in you. And it's because of you that we can stand one day before you and before the Father and to say, I am clean, not because of anything I have done, but Lord, only because you have done it on my behalf. Help us today to ponder the beauty and the majesty of you being this covenant, faithful God. Would you be glorified, Lord, in your name. Amen.